everybody. Welcome to Making It, a weekly podcast about how to build a great business, produced by Enterprise. Your 6am briefing on finance, business and economics in Egypt. This season is brought to you by CIB, the partner of choice for CEOs and leaders of businesses at all stages of their growth stories. And by the United States Agency for International Development, which has a 40-year history of inspiring Egyptian success in partnership with the government and the people of Egypt. Your host today is Hashem, Enterprise's Executive Editor. If you're not a health worker and you don't work in a factory or work site, chances are you're listening to this at home. And if you're a parent, then you've probably noticed the critters that you used to spend adult time away from every week, now your office neighbors. As a matter of fact, you may have even taken up a part-time no-pay internship as their teaching assistants. Now going back to ancient times, education was basically a class, whether in a room or not, with students and teachers in the same vicinity and interacting face-to-face. So you'd be hard-pressed to find a sector more thoroughly disrupted by COVID-19 as education. You'd even be more hard-pressed to find a sector whose disruption has, in turn, so thoroughly disrupted our home lives more than education. Every school owner we've spoken to for our Monday Education News Vertical Blackboard has told us that teachers are basking in never-before-seen levels of glory and appreciation. But what's also interesting is that the disruption which is unpending millennia of education tradition, has been relatively smooth. Platforms have been up and running and online courses are being taught. And this transformation was up and running in a span of days. You can even argue that the education system's transformation away from rote memorization to more practical applications like projects and papers got a big shot in the arm from the COVID-19 crisis. All this to show just how crucial it was to get education up cementing the argument that education is one of the key defensive plays during the crisis. Here to talk to us about the radical transformations in such a key part of our lives is Mohamed Al-Qalla, CEO of Sira, one of Egypt's biggest education services operators in both K-12 and universities. He's a man that thoroughly knows the business of education, and he's been calling for many of the changes we're now seeing. And spoiler alert, don't worry, schooling from home is not one of them. If you believe in the Chinese curse that says, may he live in interesting times, then Muhammad wears the cursed mantle with pride. Because long before the COVID crisis, Sira has seen some interesting times. After delisting from the stock exchange back in 2015, the company came back with a strong listing in October 2018, using the capital there to fuel a massive expansion. Now, Sira owns and operates 19 K-12 schools under three distinct brands, Mavericks, Futures, and Rising Stars. These cover several educational curricula and the national and international systems. In 2014, the company expanded into higher education with Badr University, a 45-acre campus in Cairo and around 8,000 students enrolled. He's been privy to some of the interesting happenings of the sector in the past few years. He's seen the opportunity in education shift towards the middle class and away from Cairo and Alexandria. He's seen the era of the family-owned schools make way for the corporates backed by strong capital. He's also seen the massive regulatory shifts that rocked the sector last year, at education being made a constituent sector on the EGX, with Sierra carrying most of the weight. And as an investor in education tech, he's anticipated some of the big changes happening now. We don't think you need any further reasons why we chose him to start season two of making it, except this. 
In keeping with what's going on, this is appropriately the first episode we recorded entirely from home. So we apologize for the neighbor's loud and what we feel is somewhat mistreated dog in the background. A quick disclaimer, Sierra has been an important supporter of Enterprise's educational news vertical, Blackboard. Uh, so this, so we ask our guests this every time they come on. Uh, what's the one childhood game or toy that you feel was like kind of most responsible in shaping your life forward? Uh, video games. <laughs> uh, kind of still is, I think, right? Yeah, to like- a large extent. <laughs> no, I'm actually, I'm, I'm a big, I'm a big uh, believer in the gaming culture in general, and uh, and I think video games have changed a lot of things for kids and around the world and how they brought up and how they think about things and how they... Well, now they're keeping families together and seen. <laughs> Big time. I mean, a lot of people are actually finding this as a very interesting platform. And classical thinking was always that the gaming culture is all about wasting time. But I mean, they don't realize that it actually develops a lot of the needed skills uh, for the modern world. And um, people actually believe that there is a huge educational element into the gaming environment. Um, and tell us how your day to day has been since working from home. It's been, uh, been very interesting to be quite frank. And I'm basically on a 50-50% rotation. And, um, a senior management and core team at, at CIRA is, uh, is on this basis. Uh, the other 90% stay at home full time now. Um, so I get to go down at least two and a half days a week and the other two and a half days I spend at home. Uh, so all in all, it's been quite an interesting experience uh, for me and there is a lot of things I've taken in life as uh, what we call it core assumptions. I have to go to meetings. I have to commute. I have to take the road. Uh, I have to travel a few times every month. And I'm finding that that's actually not really a core need now. Um, a lot of things can be done efficiently uh, using uh, remote technology. Not to say that tomorrow we're going to have a, a digital world, but I think people will be much more less resilient to start um, changing some elements in the life uh, for e-technology, specifically the one that's going to make it easier and most cost efficient to a large extent. Um, so let's talk about the company. So CIRA stands for Cairo for Investment and Real Estate Development. We see the words investment and real estate there, but I don't see education. So explain that. Explain that history of the company and that transition to education. So it's actually interesting. So, so CIRA never really transitioned into education. CIRA have always been an education company from day one. CIRA is a very interesting integrated model because uh, back in 1992, when the first school started, the idea was the group of founders would be doing everything that relates to the educational process. So they build their own schools and hence the real estate component. They actually provide all sorts of services around schooling, uh, from buses, from infrastructure, and, and hence the, the name at the beginning. And it was a very interesting thought back in 1992 because if you really take a look at the educational scenery during uh, mid-80s, early 90s, and still until now, it, it's mainly family-owned uh, businesses or, or enterprises that basically provide educational services and very focused on the educational component. The idea of CIRA at inception was to provide a proper governed entity that acts as a corporate and invests in every single supply chain factor that evolves around the educational process. And that's how CIRA came to be and hence the name. Um, uh, so, I mean, and from the first, I mean, the first project for the company was a school back in 1992. Are we seeing more family-owned businesses transition in the way CIRA has? Uh, 
I mean, in other sectors, we have seen that, and people have definitely took the lead before us. But in the educational field, yes. I think the, the, the listing of CIRA and uh, the evolution of the CIRA model over the past specifically five, six years have encouraged a lot of them to start thinking differently. So we have seen a number of transactions happening over the past few years, a number of investment funds entering into the sector and trying to grow proper platforms, and a number of second and third generation basically owners now thinking of how can they transform their um, own schools and old universities into a proper business platform. And I think it's very good for the industry. I mean, uh, it, it's a no-brainer. More structure, better governance is better service for uh, for all uh, stakeholders, as well as better value for shareholders. And sustainability. I mean, there's always one angle, Hisham, I always tell people you have to bear in mind. Our business is very unique because if you think of my production cycle, it's 14 years. I mean, at K-12, my entry KG-1 is something that I'll see the output of 14 years down the line. So how many production cycles can any uh, business owner see in her lifetime doing this business? And that's why sustainability and governance is core because we have such a long chain of production. You're a company that delisted from the EGX before you then relisted. Talk to us about that. Like, why did you delist? I mean, we were technically listed like a lot of companies back in the early 2000s when there was actually uh, tax exemptions for technical listing on the stock market. So a lot of companies in Egypt had the position of CIRA, which is being technically listed for, uh, for basically tax benefit. Uh, but I mean, the stock market is much more than just being a listed company. You have to be an actively listed company and engaging and adjusting the way you do business in order to be able to be listed properly and traded properly. That's exactly what we did. So when we delisted, we always had in mind that we're going to come back and relist a few years down the line. And it was about actually uh, delisting your company, making sure you do proper uh, internal management restructuring adjustment and be able to relist uh, with a proper value and a proper management uh, position. So it wasn't a case of you deciding to, you know, so to speak, get in bed with private equity and withdraw. You always kind of knew you were going to get back into the EGX. Yeah. At the end of the day, I mean, to be quite frank, I think this type of business specifically, in order for it to sustain and grow, it needs a specific level of regulation and disclosure. Think of it, Sierra is now expanding as one of the largest, if not the largest player in the private sector field. And when you deal and provide services for the thousands, it's only fair that you become as transparent and as regulated as possible. And we believe that's an essential part of our business. And that's why I believe that actually being listed have always been good for Sierra. And we're never into the game of just getting out and staying with PE. It was always with the game of what would be called, we need to up our act to be properly listed and provide a good model for the sector going forward. This is exactly what we did. Also, an element I want to highlight here is that Sierra have been working with DFIs for a very long time, ever since 2010. Um, so, I mean, engagements with the tycoon DFIs like the IFC, EBRD, and others um, have always been with Sierra for the past 10 years. So it's not like we're, we're leaving the stock market and we're enjoying um, uh, what we call it uh, a less controlled environment. No, we're actually always going through DFI reporting. Uh, DFI, and, and I can tell you, this is as rigorous as being on the stock market. So being transparent, reporting and disclosure was never something new for us. And that's why, I mean, we were always longing to come back. But to, but to a certain degree, couldn't you get those advantages with just going for private equity? Not really. To a large extent, public accountability is the highest level of accountability to a large extent. It's about upping your game. I mean, it's being exposed to a number of really reputable shareholders and each one of them has their own business view. It's much more enriching much more accountable, and it's much more supportive to a large extent because 
I mean, you have seen the fall of a lot of PEs that have happened these days. And uh, I'm not saying that it's something across the sector, but we have seen models. It happened. It happened all around the world. And I don't think, again, a business with this very long view on sustainability can be in a comfortable position being with a single PE. It's a very short-sighted approach. Uh, a wider platform, a wider stake um, is, is for the interest of everyone around us. If you go down and start dissecting the stakeholder framework around education, it's mind-boggling. It's such an extended stakeholder chain that you're talking about hundreds of thousands of people around the business like ours. Let's take it a step further then. Would you then see that um, listing itself, um, wouldn't that make the priority shift towards the shareholder in particular? Like wouldn't shareholder, creating shareholder value then become a priority for a school? And that may not necessarily be in the best interest for the, for the school or sector? Okay, look at it this way. Why do investors flock to education and healthcare and other services? Because to a large extent, these are defensive industries. And that's what everybody keeps saying. Invest some of your portfolio in defensive industries. They're much more sustainable. They're only sustainable and long-term if they keep providing proper value for their customers. So, I mean, there is a single limit for any educational institution that they can fight to satisfy shareholders versus their own customers at the end of the day. Because if you use this element of sustainability and for example you end up becoming an educational enterprise with a high level of churn with a high level of public resentment then you lose this whole defensive attitude i mean to, to, to a large extent uh, a stable um, schooling or university services only see churn rates that would climb a maximum to a four or five percent you see the same faces going forward and this is where you drive your defensive um, to a large extent factor so there is a limit, and our shareholders understand that. And it's also about what type of shareholders you end up having. I mean, to a large extent, this business is mainly suited for institutional shareholders, long-term shareholders. So take a look at this as a long-term industry that definitely brings a lot of growth and value, but it's not an industry where you can actually do a fast-track button to up your, your game tomorrow. It will never be like that. Otherwise, play. it comes. Exactly. And that's why we find much more comfort. I mean, take a look at Sira's... Uh, Shareholder instruction. Now we're going to find it's mostly uh, foreign uh, owning institutions with very long term shareholding balances. I mean, and I don't want to mention names, but I mean, it's, it's quite familiar to the market. And that's the type of investor we're always looking for. Um, so in the early 2019, we kind of saw an, a massive influx of private equity capital going into the sector. And actually, not just 2019, even before that. Um, was that a positive for the sector? 100%. And, and it's, I think, is really key that we understand that. Egypt have a big problem in terms of providing needed seats for our students moving forward. It's always mind-boggling for me to mention that at grade 12, we have close to 900,000 students, and at kindergarten one, it's two-plus million students. So the demand in this country for education is mind-boggling. And the problem is, if you take a look at the size of the private sector, it's still very small compared to what the government have to bear in terms of um, seats and ability to provide these seats on yearly basis. So the private sector have a role to play. But small, single-held um, uh, private companies will not be able to match the growth with the level of control and quality you'll be looking for. That's why I think the idea of coming in and opening the market to what I would call them the right investors who have a long-term approach and can add value to the educational institution becomes very important for this industry because it creates more platforms and more platforms able to provide more quality seats.
So, I mean, the key element here is growth, but growth that comes with the proper investor and with the proper educational positioning. Can we, uh, can we shift gears a little bit and talk about the business? Sure. Um, so which is harder to run, K-12 or university? K-12. Think of it this way. There's not a single industry in this world where you actually uh, sit with your customer more than they sit at their home. So, I mean, think of it, nine months around the year, I have these kids within our schools and they stay from 7.30 in the morning up to three in the afternoon, every day, except for the weekends. Uh, so the level of accountability that you have towards them is extremely, extremely high. It's a risk towards their safety, it's a risk towards their education, towards their future, towards their society, it's everything. I mean, it, there's a huge accountability at hand here. And this accountability really increases when you go, when the kids become younger in age, with students like when they're five, six, seven, eight year olds, I mean, the level of accountability is multiples of a university student. So you guys own Mavericks schools, future schools. Um, on the university side, you guys have Bedri University. We, we have also other brands into them. Yeah. So I mean, if you take a look at the K to twelve, I mean, there's Rising Stars, there is Futures, uh, L'Ecole de l'Avenir. Um, um, there is um, Mavericks, um, um, British Columbia, and we're also introducing uh, a new partnership, which is Saxony International. And, and there's also introducing a new brand in the market, which is uh, Region Schools, as well as uh, with the partnership now with Saxony International in Germany, we'll be featuring them in Egypt next year. So more or less, we have around eight brands of schooling that we work with. And for universities, it's mainly Badri University in Cairo, and we're now in the framework of launching the other campus of Badri University in Asyut. Um, you guys have been going on a bit of a shopping spree acquisition-wise, right? You've uh, yeah, I mean, acquired stakes in a bunch of education firms. You have Saeed, you have Starlight Education. What else have you guys been acquiring? Uh, I mean, uh, we also have a lot of investment into the tech industry I've been doing for the past few years. I mean, I guess you have been following that the work I've been doing with NFX Capital. So, I mean, think of it this way. We always try to find um, what we call it value bringing institutions to add them to the portfolio under the notion of the server purpose. I mean, so I mean, uh, when we entered into the partnership with, with Upper Egypt for Education and we expanded into Upper Egypt, the aim was that we want to bring a very strong middle class service to Upper Egypt. When we have seen the market for that, we have seen the potential and, and the model is extremely successful. When we moved and we actually partnered with the Mustafa family in British Columbia, this have been about basically uh, working with one, I think, one of the best schools in Egypt in terms of educational system. I mean, British Columbia educational system is cu currently the third best in the world. So, I mean, the access to this educational system, the value it brings uh, as a very mo modern educational system is something we're very interested in, and that's why we're interested. What are the metrics you're looking at when acquiring a school? What is it that you look for? Number one, value addition. Be because at the end of the day, when I acquire a school and work with a platform, it's never about the single economics of the school. It's about how much value would this school trickle down on the whole portfolio. So, so value addition becomes my first uh, matrix. Second becomes the added quality. And third is the financial returns. And, and again, because you're a much more sophisticated, let's call it operator to a large extent, whenever you approach an educational enterprise, there is always a value added in how we can improve its performance. So, I mean, financial performance at day one is never the single uh, or uh, most important uh, in, uh, factor for us. And number four, and I have to highlight, is basically uh, the human resource acquisition. 
I mean, to a large extent, we take a look at some of these um, entry points and look what sort of team will be adding to the overall mix of Sira. And if you ask me now, what is single-handed most important asset that we have? I'll tell you the 4,000 plus workforce that we have. So you guys launched a subsidiary called Edu Systems International? Uh, we have we have been having that since day one. And, and Edu Systems right. International is actually our management company for all of our school brands, except for right. uh, three of them. So I mean, we have two educational management companies. One of them is ESI, which runs mm-hmm. a number of the brand, and the other one is EduHive, which run some other brands. And this is where we house a lot of our know-how, IP rights, knowledge components, and we provide through them a lot of services for other operators. IP, you say? Yes. Like uh, just the brand names and stuff, or do you guys have proprietary? We have proprietary knowledge. I mean, let me give you an idea. I mean, Sira have thousands and thousands of its own educational objects that have been developed over the years. Give us an example. Think of any lesson in the Egyptian educational curricula, and we have at least five, six forms of how to deliver this lesson because we have our own developed content over the, a number and number of years. So which geographic location or governorate has the most potential to grow for education in Egypt? Um, my guess, and anything outside Cairo, Alexandria has a huge potential these days. I mean, um, uh, it's very important to take a look at what I would call it, the, 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 the percentage of private sector presence across different governorates. It varies tremendously in Egypt. And, and I think um, um, it's just about the right mix and the right value point. But the potential definitely is outside of concentration uh, capitals. Is Egypt's middle class underserved right now? And if so, yes. by how much and where? So, I mean, e- Egypt middle class in general is underserved to a large extent. And, um, but the problem with serving the Egyptian middle class is that you have to have a really uh, right mix because at the end of the day, it's the class that's most cognitive of the value for money. So in order to be able to serve them, you have to have a right mix. And they are present all over Egypt. I mean, gone are the days of migration to the capital. I mean, there is a big pockets of Egyptian middle class that's building all over uh, governorates in Egypt. You just have to be able to approach them and provide them with the right service. And the interesting idea is that because Egypt is such a diverse and rich country in terms of its anthropological uh, uh, overlook. So, I mean, each of these communities have their own approaches, their own habits, and their own needed mix. And you just have to need to study quite well how are you entering, but the demand is all over the place. I mean, you see them at coastal cities, you see them down in Delta, you see them in Upper Egypt, it's everywhere. What's the, give us an idea of what the demand is like, like how many classes, classrooms do, does Egypt need to be building at this point? I think already the, the, the Ministry of Education have produced a lot of data on this, but I mean, it's in the thousands on annual basis. As I told you, I mean, think of it this way. The number that's being served currently at, at kindergarten one is more, or, is more or less two and a half times the number that's being served at grade 12. And, uh, are we, and, are we uh, keeping pace with that demand? No, I don't think anybody is able to keep pace on this demand, not the government alone, not the private sector alone. It has to be a joint effort. And, and we have to start thinking outside of the box because I don't think it's a race we can win with brick and mortar. And that's why I was very, very happy with the approach that the ministry is taking and trying to be innovative and trying to find alternative solution. I think the whole educational industry is being changed by the day. I mean, it's not to dream that tomorrow this is going to go away because education is just more about, not just about giving um, content, it's, it's about, about the whole human experience. But evolution is happening and we have to start thinking outside of the box if we want to make sure that every single student in Egypt um, um, gets educated. Matingnet is brought to you in association with USAID. For 40 years, the American people through USAID 
have invested over $30 billion to inspire Egyptian success in partnership with the government and the people of Egypt. Do we have enough teaching talent to keep pace with the growth of the sector? No, it's, it's such a far-fetched approach. I mean, think of it this way. I mean, take a look at the budget of the Ministry of Education and look at how much they actually have to put into building schools to be able to keep the pace versus how much is actually going really into upgrading of teachers, upgrading of content and, 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 and IT development. And the same happens with the private sector because this ongoing demand keeps us all held so down from being able to think of how can we get out of this dreadlock. I mean, and, and that's why when you think of it, I mean, CIRA has a massive program every year in which we train hundreds and hundreds of teachers without any cost at our own, actually, um, uh, um, ability to be able to reach them, train them out of universities, to be able to create the teaching talent that we need. But definitely, we don't have a number of graduating teachers able to cover all of this. I mean, I mean the ministry itself is now announcing that they're opening chances for part-time teachers and people able to come and support. There is, there is a huge demand for teachers that the market is not meeting. So you mentioned CIRA is training teachers in-house. Is that what it needs to get to? That the private I sector... Think every, Yes, the private sector needs 100%. The private sector need to do their own social role. They need to start training teachers. They need to start creating teachers that will move not only in their enterprises, everywhere else, because otherwise uh, we're going to have a scary scarcity. So this is not a problem that tech can solve? Not to a large extent, because at the end of the day, what does tech provide? Tech provides the platform in which students, to a large extent, engage with teachers. But where where, where is the input source? I mean... Tech to succeed have to be, to a large extent, governed and, and worked by what we call it a facilitator, a knowledge person, a person who is able to engage students. And take a look at every single educational platform over the past few years who have been static in the way they approach education. So content is there, all the knowledge that you have in the world is there. And by no means, it's getting a percentage of the activation of systems where you have students engaging on social basis and engaging with teachers. There's a huge human element around education that's not about just the availability of knowledge components. It's about the interaction around knowledge components. And, and, that's, and that's very important for us to realize. So, I mean, I don't think anybody should be thinking that we're going to be one day where we don't need teachers and you're going to learn everything online. No, the human element and your ability to, to work in groups and discuss with sources of knowledge and be able to process this data is key. So 2019 was a very, very interesting year for education. Uh, and I have to talk about the elephant in the room, which is the 20% cap on foreign investments in private schools that was imposed by the ministry. Um, how relieved were you guys when you guys were given an avenue to be exempted from that decision? I'll tell you something. Sierra, to a large extent, was very proactive on, on, on this decision going forward. So, And th there's always a good part and there's always a bad part. I'll try to be very balanced here. I think the bad part is that a decision like this comes out without proper discussion with stakeholders. And I think uh, uh, abrupt uh, decisions like this without proper stakeholder discussion uh, provide a lot of harm to the, uh, um, uh, to the what do you call it, I mean, the likability of, of investors for such sectors in Egypt uh, in general. However, on the other hand, when we sat down with the ministry and they were very candid in their discussions open forward, so they actually uh, posed to us, a lot of the top players in the industry voiced out to the ministry, um, discussions was open. We had a lot of back and forth. We understood where they were coming from and, and the, the issue that essentially there needs to be some form of a KYC in which 
people know who's coming into the sector, what are they uh, eating kids, what are they providing into the market, uh, which is, to a large extent, the right of any uh, government and society around the world. Um, through this series of discussions, we arrived to a position where the government was actually quite cognitive about it and came out and say, you know what, we we are we, we know that there is top players in this sector, they're providing value, we're going to provide an, an exempt mechanism to make sure that everybody is able to provide value is exempt from this. And the process took around three months down the line, which I think is, was a bit uh, good because I mean, it didn't take a very prolonged approach. But I mean, uh, I think we're in a much better now, at least all the serious and serious operators find the clear going forward. Uh, but I think the lesson learned here is prior stakeholder consultation can make sure that any decision that's in the best interest of the country is being taken uh, with the support of all sectors going forward. But I mean, overall, I, I feel comfortable about the process and the outcomes so far. And I'm being very candid in my opinion. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. Uh, what, what, what was the industry looking at? Had that decision to provide an avenue for serious investors not been done? If it was, I didn't get you because it was not given. If it was not given, it would have done massive damage to the sector. Because at the end of the day, I mentioned to you at the beginning, the, the entry of serious investors and the change of the of the way this industry is shaped up in terms of creation of much more uh, governed and reliable institution is mandatory for the survival of this industry and for its role to continue going forward. So I, I think if the private sector in Egypt have been deprived from this ability to partner with international institutions and proper international investors, this would have really took the sector down tremendously at a time where it needs to up its game and be able to work with the government on providing the needed quality seats for education going forward. So I'm, I'm happy this is clear because the damage would have been very severe. And also there is a damage in general overall of the economic ability of this country going forward because a lot of the, the same investors who invest in education are some of the most investors in Egypt in general, in different sectors. And they would have taken this with such a grain of salt because at the end of the day, I can't just jump into industry and start investing and you start producing decisions that will hinder my investments going forward. So clarity, disclosure and stakeholder consultation is mandatory for any reputable fund to be able to come into a country and invest comfortably. That's where I think a lot of damage could have happened. I'm happy that this is to a large extent out of the room now. Um, another interesting thing that happened in 2019 was that education became a constituent sector of the EGX, and you guys are carrying it in terms of weight. What's that pressure like, and would you like to see more players there? Definitely. I mean, definitely would like to see more players there. Uh, again, we were very proactive, and I actually, this whole move about with you, of EGX to create different sectors and recognize them is, for me, was actually instrumental. Um, it's, it's a strong response to a lot of demands. Um, it came at the right time. I mean, I mean, think about it this way. Investors in Syria were always asking it. Why are we investing in a company listed in the real estate division? Primarily, 95% of our revenues come from educational practices. So, and so, I mean, think of it this way. It's, it's about basically able to highlight specific areas where investors are not even familiar with the country can come in and start seeing which sectors that they like based on macro research and start funneling into. So it's about helping the right investors find the right indices to a large uh, extent. And also, uh, I think the presence of the sector gives the EGX as well as the companies a chance to discuss common ground that is really industry fitting. Because, I mean, there's not a single approach to which any of the other industries would have benefited education. Um, so it, it's a hub that we're happy now to be at the corner of. And I think, to be quite <laughs> frank, I'm, I'm familiar with at least two to three entities that are going to be very soon 
looking at being part of this uh, basically sector going forward. And I'm telling you, the more and more you see companies moving into the sector and its value and volume grows, the, the more the government will be able to deal with private sector on education in a much more structured manner and be able to really realize the value that they can provide in a way that they can discuss with them. So education as a sector proved itself, proved its defensive metal early on in the crisis. Is education still holding its ground? I mean, to a large extent, I mean, we, we, we are hanging there. I mean, I, I think we're performing much better than a lot of the other sectors that got hit into the market. Um, um, again, uh, the nature of the of the shareholders within the education sector is what, to a large extent, is protecting it during these times because m most of them are in for the long haul. They understand that that's not a, a quick game. So everybody's looking at the five, six, seven years down the plan. So when hiccups like this happen, it doesn't affect, to a large extent, the, the value of the stock of the tradability of it. How is Sira primed to capitalize on any rebound post-COVID? I mean, we're definitely taking a look at several things that's going to happen. I mean, uh, we started with an initiative, I mean, a long time ago of really taking a look at EdTech and investing it and, and see the potential. I think there's a lot that's going to happen with EdTech the coming few years. And uh, we're at the forefront to really uh, ride the potential on this uh, moving forward. And also our, our, our plans of, of geographical expansion is, is on track. And now people see day to day that we have to start thinking of how can we provide services without people having to commute long hours or move between governorates to be able to get best practice, specifically in the angle of universities and others. Gone are the days of centralized servicing. And this is an inherent belief I'm seeing now. So EdTech, decentralization of education services is two angles I think is going to happen big time. We expect more consolidation and M&As following the crisis? Yes, you're going to expect a lot of M&As happening because of the following. Number one, you're going to find a lot of um, single assets or single schools that are facing a lot of financial problems because there have been a lot of uh, investment that is needed in terms of the online transformation and the training of teachers and movement. And, and there's an issue in terms of some of the cash flow because of the, of, of the interruption of the educational uh, service as customary as it was. So definitely we're going to see a lot of, of schools in need of support and this opened the, the, the parameter for M&A uh, uh, services uh, going forward. So I think yes, post-COVID definitely uh, there's going to be, and it's all, again, as explained before, it's a potential for the whole sector to grow going forward. Is it, uh, are we looking at the end of the mom and pop education and now moving more corporate? We have been looking at this end two years ago already. So we're down this path. Are we going to see an? Are we see? Are we, we going to see an acceleration of that? Yes, and I'll tell you also uh, because of the growing demand of the education worldwide now, um, uh, the type of bandwidth uh, is very hard now to be maintained by families going forward. Uh, I mean, and uh, and it needs institutional setup. It needs a lot of talent to come in, and it needs a much wider pool. So all of this compared with the, with the hardship that happened over the past few years, compared with the COVID experience fast track this whole end of um, mom and dad shops and and the uh, era of uh, institutionalization of private education in egypt walk us through the day you guys pulled the trigger on work from home it's three days i would say the one day but i mean <laughs> give you day one day two day three so day one was actually all about uh, uh, number one the the policy itself so we really focused the first few hours on making sure that we have a documented policy went out to all of our um, education institutions across the platform, indicating what's going to happen in the next two and a half days. That includes step-by-step -step approach to usage of technology, which platforms, uh, technical components, 
trainings, availing specific sites of people have problem connecting back home, processes, uh, deliveries, what should be delivered on campus before they move to off-campus services. And it, it was a very detailed message going out to everyone. Uh, by mid-day one, this went out. Uh, by the second half of day one was basically a lot of logistical work in terms of buying some of the still needed equipment, making sure everything is steady in place, uh, preparations are done on site, uh, making sure there is rotation for day two to some of the teachers to come in and deliver their content, take whatever lessons that they need back with them, get some technical help. We had training sessions that co covered 1,500 students, sorry, teachers in one day across 20 uh, locations in Egypt. Uh, we did beautiful work with our own LMS and also with Microsoft on the Microsoft Teams platform. They have been very supportive of what we've been doing. And uh, basically, uh, by end of day two, everybody knew exactly what they're going, were going to do. There's technical help in place. Day three was about outreach to parents, sending their access points, making sure they're aware of it, and doing some demo trials. And then basically between day four and day eight, is the, the startup uh, basically phase where we, people started to flocking in, percentage started to increase by the day, a lot of technical problems that our technical teams were laid out to be able to deal with. Uh, by day nine, uh, our percentage was very high and it becomes a normal process. And then we're dealing with individual cases, uh, right, left and center. So this is how the transition looked like. When did we see, did you guys see the writing on the wall and take action from there? Or did you guys already have plans in place in the event of an emergency? So basically two pointers here. Um, we, we started a, uh, basically an institutional initiative almost a year ago, specifically at the K-12, in which we asked our students every month to actually go in online and solve uh, a form of online assessment uh, or a quiz or a different form of uh, intake. And, uh, and this have really benefited us tremendously uh, because now a lot of our students were very familiar with our online access LMS systems and, and so on and so forth. Also, when we started seeing the writings of the world two weeks before we, we started moving into online, uh, we were really focused on making sure that our hardware is ready as well as our software. But I mean, to a large extent, uh, I, I think that we have been um, at least 70% ready for something like this uh, prior to its happening. All right. So give us a tour of your e-learning platform, so to speak. Walk us through it. If I'm a student, what will I see? And if I was a teacher, what would I see? So we start actually with our students in, in schools differently. Some start at 8, some start at 9. The day prolonged until 1.30. And it includes various forms of, of, of lessons, um, activities that happen online. Some of them even include some sports, PE uh, lessons. And it works along the way. So if, if, okay, so I'll tell you how. PE teacher gets online, show them some exercises they need to do. They have some art lessons. They have even have some music lessons online uh, where, where students come in and, and, and they do the practice. And then we resume in the second half of the day some other lessons. And then by the end of the day, they're left with some homework that they need to cover to be able to come to the next day. So the idea here was not about just giving the content. The idea is that I want to maintain for my students a healthy lifestyle. I want to make sure that they wake up in the morning, they have access to knowledge, they see their, their friends even virtually, they interact with their teachers, they get some activity time at, uh, on different platforms, and they have something to keep them busy in the afternoon. That's a very interesting point. I've heard of a lot of schools that have had to basically cut these quote-unquote non-essential subjects like PE and art and some of the other activities. You're against that, huh? Totally. Because at the end of it, we, we are at a position, and, and that's my inherent belief. We are at a position where 
it's not just about at this point of time making sure that the kids get enough know-how or knowledge. There is a very important psychological element in how we approach our kids these days. And to be quite frank, I, I sympathize to a large extent with the, with the young students. They have seen a lot in this country over the past few years. They have, we have been having interruptions during the revolution time, um, uh, during economic crisis, during a lot of issues. Egypt have seen a lot of interruptions for their education starting 2010 going forward. And now they see it more with the COVID. And specifically the situation of the COVID, they're locked down. They don't have access. Not a lot of students come from... Uh, from economic backgrounds where they live in big houses, where they have gardens, where they have spaces to interact. Some of these students are living in small, very small houses in very crowded areas where they don't have leisure time, where they don't have a lot of activities to do around. So it's, it, it is a social commitment that you provide them with a healthy style that keep them psychologically happy, keep them well engaged and keep them active. And that's a priceless uh, contribution. It's not about how many lessons. It's about are they healthy, growing and dealing with this crisis to a large extent. And they need all the support that they can from their peers, from their teachers, from everyone else. And believe me, and as I told you before, they are, in some of the family students are much more used to the teachers and the classroom more than they're used to their parents. So the situation is very fluid and we don't really know when we're going to come out of this on the other side. Um, is Sierra hunkering down and preparing for this extending all onto the 2020-2021 academic year? Yes. Tell you something, we moved everything online, even admission now have moved online. So we are in the mode of, we are getting ready that if push comes to shove, which I personally believe is a very little unlikely scenario, but if it happens, we're at least ready to be able to, through the fall, provide very similar experience going forward. Actually, it's going to be even improved and with longer hours. Have we seen layoffs, wage cuts, any of that? Not a single one, and we will not do that. Um, can all education companies and schools depend on the sector being defensive or are we going to see some losers coming out of COVID? No, definitely going to be uh, some losers coming out of COVID. No discussion here. As I told you, the online transformation... And, and, what, and what type of companies are these going to be? The, the, the dinosaurs, because this is an era of transformation. So the ones that are unable to transform quickly enough are going to lose on students and are going to lose on, on, on teachers as well as costs that might even hinder them from doing so. So I, I think that the, the lag of transformation is going to be a huge problem in satisfying your customers as well as being able to cover it economically, on the other hand. Uh, second component is the ones that are going to really start tapping into, and I'm not saying this is out of their own will, I'm saying that some of the single asset schools are going to have a lot of problems because of the cash flow. But I mean, uh, the moment you start uh, basically um, uh, bringing this down on your teachers, I mean, they'll have to find other sources and, and you're going to lose a lot on your talent pool. What will e-learning look like after the COVID crisis? It's definitely going to grow exponentially. And I see the growth happening in two angles. Definitely, uh, I think gone is the era of postgraduate on-site learning, 100%. I mean, definitely you're going to see an era where all postgraduate programs mostly are going to be happening online with some on-site visits, basically, to support uh, like specific experiences. And also, I see a lot of movement in high school towards online because this is the era. I mean, think about it this way. I mean, high school is the time where basically parents are not worried about having their kids at home when they were not there. It's the era where you have already formed a lot of friends and you have a community and where you actually can start to a large extent starting to learn how to balance your life, when to access lessons and stuff like that. So I'm going to see I think we're going to see good movement on online happening in high school. But the biggest impact we're going to see is actually not into licensed schooling. It's in private tutoring. 
Please explain, elaborate. I'll tell you, I'll tell you something. I, I have seen a figure in the news that was mind-boggling for me, that the government have closed 7,600 private centers, lesson centers in Egypt. This is more than the number of licensed private schools. So the whole idea of people going to private lessons is mind-boggling for me. This means that a huge proportion of your students, both public and private, go to these centers. Otherwise, you wouldn't have 7,600 centers in place, ready and act. So I think now a lot of the tutoring is going to be looking at online availability because I don't think the government is going to come back and reopen these centers again. Because I think this was one of been a priority that have been talked about by the government that these this is an illegal activities that needs to be regulated somehow and there needs to be a, co- a control towards what happens there. Um, so talk to us about some of your VC plays. Uh, that's interesting. I think NFX are much more positioned to talk more than me about the VC plays. But I mean, so far we have invested into edtech platforms uh, regionally. So basically in Egypt, in, in, in Jordan, Saudi Arabia. And we have invested also in, in what we call it tutoring platforms, some of them in different countries. We invested in some tech startups in, in, in the U.S. and Silicon Valley, utilizing different tools. What do you guys education. look at in terms of uh, in terms look, of that you invest I, I, in? I always tell basically people that the way we approach investment is the way we approach disruption. We consider our investment team our disruption team. So they would be looking at anything that would be disrupting conventional education and keep tabs on it. All right. So I guess we're going to come to the last question of the interview, which is, if I was an investor, why would I invest in Sierra? Uh, actually, because of everything I mentioned on this podcast, to a large extent. Number one, Sierra is a social entrepreneurial venture, even before they had something to call the term for. So, I mean, this was an impact business back in 1992, taking a look at the Egyptian middle class and saying, we want to create value and create a sustainable project that is profitable at the same time create an outcome. And over the year, it have proven 25 years of experience, have grown thousands of graduates, very strong brands known on the market. And again, never lost focus on what the middle class wants in this country. And it's very committed to them. Second, this is an institutional entity with very rigorous governance that have been highlighted by DFIs in a number of reports, where where, where family does not constitute more than 10% of the senior management team of this company. Uh, so this is a highly, highly governed entity that is transparent, listed, able to disclose, and is an open book for everyone, regulators as well as investors. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode. If you want to comment or maybe suggest a guest, send us an email at makingit@enterprise.press. That's makingit@enterprise.press. Making It is produced by Enterprise, your morning briefing on business, finance, and economics in Egypt. Subscribe today for free at enterprise.press. Did you like today's episode? Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you get your shows. Did you love today's episode? Like us or give us a five-star rating and a review to help others discover us. This season is brought to you by CIB and by the United States Agency for International Development, And that's how we're making it.